I don't know where you're at this week, but he's good. One of the last things Kathy said to me was, I love you. God is good. And I look at your faces, and boy, you guys have had a week. The number of phone calls of things that I have heard this week, God is good. He's faithful, and you've been through it. This morning, as we move on in our study of Ephesians, we have to go back and uh, we need to kind of walk through our previous weeks because we got to get here. We got to get to where we're at. So if you haven't been with us, we're going to do a quick recap. So if you remember in in week one, Ephesians chapter one, we talked about how the will of God is unity in all things under Christ. Talked about how Paul was reminding us that we're no longer a part of this old story, a story of sin and division, but we're a part of this new story of grace and of unity that brings us together. And then Paul goes on to tell us about the reason why we can do that is through the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we never quit giving thanks for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the way that we do that is living a life of worship. Right? So in week one it took me 30 minutes, and today it took 30 seconds, but... You remember that. Last week we talked about chapter 2. and We talked about how Paul wanted us to stop bickering, right? We talked about the, the dividing wall of hostility being broken down by Christ. We talked about it as a hot dog, a sandwich, and how much, how silly that is, but the bickering that goes on is over silly things that try to divide us. And then today we move on to chapter 3, and I promise you I'm not going to just preach the same sermon again. It sounds repetitive, but there's some new things that we need to pick out here. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 13. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1. I invite you to stand today in honor of the Lord's word. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight and mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and priests. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. You can be seated. 
So if you haven't realized now, Paul's letter, especially in Ephesians, is kind of wordy, right? I mean, if I just asked you what I just read, you would probably go, grace, Jesus, prison, something? You know, it's, it's wordy. It's almost as if Paul in his prison cell is just so excited and amped up. He's just writing and just keeps going and just keeps going. And he didn't have a way to erase, so he just kept it all in and just kept going. It's just kind of spewing out of him. Uh, And so the easiest way to really try to understand what he's saying to us today is is that we have to break it down a little bit. So in verse 2, Paul basically asks if if we're picking up on the administration of God's grace that has has been discussing previously in this letter. So Paul's basically taking a second and asking, are you listening? Have you heard what I've told you in the first two chapters? So the administration of God's grace. Well, that word administration, um, I was kind of wrestling with it. And so I looked it up, and it's in the Greek, it's a word that means, that is called oikonomia. Everybody say oikonomia. You now all know a word in a dead language. But, so oikonomia is, is, it can be defined as administration, but it can also be defined as the way in which one orders their house, the way in which you steward your household. So if you were here about two years ago or so, I, I did a, a video series on Wednesday nights, and uh, some of you learned and some of you had no idea what was going on because it's kind of strange. It's an interesting video series, but essentially the whole series was on this word, and um, when it came in our scripture today, I just had to bring it up. So that series was called For the Life of the World. It's available on Amazon Prime if you want to watch through it on your own. But essentially what that word oikonomia means is the economy of God. And I don't want you to just think about money here, but I want you to think about the ways in which God orders things. So our economy in America has to do much more with just finances, right? It, it has to deal with power structures and, and the way that this uh, changes that and, and just how things work together. What Paul is saying is that, that now that we're no longer a part of that old story, that we're a part of this new story in unity in Christ, things have to function differently. Our economy, God's economy is different than what the world offers to us. It's an economy that doesn't seek out power. It's an economy that always believes that there's enough to go around. So, uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's one of the most profound Old Testament scholars, uh, he, he had, has these, uh, these common phrases that he uses in his teaching. And, and those are that there's the myth of scarcity and there's the liturgy of abundance. So, those two words, essentially, if we look in the Old Testament especially... When the people of God are wandering through the wilderness and they're kind of out there, they're wanting to trust in God, they're, they're living in this myth of scarcity, right? God has said, I will provide manna for you today. It will go bad tomorrow, but trust me, I'll be back tomorrow, right? So they, they were still nervous and still tried to store up the manna because they were afraid. They were, they were afraid that they would run out, that there was not enough. But God said, listen, I'm a part of an economy where there's always enough. Just trust me. 
So it doesn't look like us seeing God's budget for the year and how he's going to pay for everything. It doesn't look like us understanding how or why God will provide. But in this economy, that's what God does. God makes it happen and trust. It's structured very differently. No longer was it up to Jews to somehow save the world. Because that's really what Paul felt before meeting Christ. But, but through this, this gift of grace, Christ has saved both Jew and Gentile. And now we can live together in harmony in God's economy. An economy that welcomes the outcast and the sinner, the near and the far, and the broken. Paul refers to the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ several times in this passage. And, and essentially what he's saying is that the mystery of Christ is that Gentiles are a part of the body too. Again, that there's no division. And so as a room of Gentiles today, we are thankful that this is true. That we are included in that body, even though we're not Jews by birth or by choice. But now we all fit. There's room for us all. And like we talked about last week, I'm not saying that, that everybody gets in. I'm not saying that you can believe whatever you want. But what I'm saying is Jesus Christ is Lord. There's room for you. We can argue about hot dogs later. So Paul goes on to tell us that he's not worthy. He's, he has no idea why God would choose him to share this grace. But he's begun to realize that this is exactly how God's economy works. The lowest on the totem pole. The last shall be first, right? We hear that Last Sunday, Pastor Gary and I had a chance to visit with Miss Umeo, uh, or Kay Johnson, how you might refer to her. And as we sat and talked, I told her what I'd preached on last week about Ephesians and unity. And, and she just got this big smile on her face. And she said, oh, Ephesians. She said, that, that was Brother McCumber's favorite. I said, oh, really? Tell me more. And she said, well, one of his favorite verses was verse 8. That's all she said, verse 8. And uh, thankfully, I had already been working through this sermon for this week, and so I knew uh, as she quoted it, I said, oh, that's, that's, that's chapter 3, that's next week. And she just smiled, but verse 3 is where, or verse 8 is where Paul is proclaiming that he is the least worthy to be the one proclaiming the gospel. And Miss Umeo reminded us that, that Brother McCumber was that way. That he, he didn't feel worthy, it would just he didn't want to be praised, just let him do what he was called to do. She said that uh, Brother McCumber always saw himself in the same way that Paul's talking about, the most unworthy. But the text tells us today that when you feel overwhelmed with a sense of unworthiness, I want you to know that no one is worthy of grace. That's what Paul wants to see. That's why it's called grace. Because you don't earn it, and you don't deserve it. But, through the divine mystery of Christ, here it is for you today. And that is good news. Paul gives us a vital role in the mission of sharing this grace of Christ. He says that the diverse, multifaceted wisdom of God may be revealed to the authorities in the heavens you remember what he said? How is that going to happen? Through the church. He didn't say it was going to happen through the pastors. 
He didn't say it was going to happen through the missionaries and the evangelists. But Paul said that the world is going to learn about this grace because of the church. And you wonder, well, well, how how could this happen? What could that be? Well, we go back to the beginning of this chapter where Paul is saying, hey, as the body, we operate differently. And when we begin to operate differently, that's going to spill out into our community. When we begin to be people of grace and understanding, people that don't cast judgment, but rather come alongside and help wholeness become possible, the world begins to notice and begins to be introduced to this grace of God. Now, you can do a lot on your own, but we as the church, this is how it's going to happen. And that's exciting and that's cool, but I also hope that you feel a little responsibility. You feel a little bit of weight and pressure on your shoulders because this is our job. It is our job to be the bearers of grace in the world. Have you ever been to a mirror maze? You know, you ever gone to Gatlinburg or Orlando or somewhere like that and you're walking down the strip and they have like the arcades and then they have all the crazy stuff, the candy shops. Well, in most places, they have a mirror maze. Has, has anybody ever done one? Raise your hands. Okay, so if you've ever done one, you know that you probably paid too much money for just a very short amount of time of somewhat kind of entertainment. It's like $12, and then you walk through, and it takes a minute and a half, and it's like, oh, we could have spent 12 bucks on a movie and had two hours of entertainment. But mirror mazes are, they're not for everyone. They're kind of confusing. Um... If you're claustrophobic, do not do a mirror maze. So essentially what happens is you walk in and you see a path. And so you keep walking and then eventually you hit a mirror. And you just kind of bump into it and, you know, well, that's not the right way. So then you pivot and you look and there's a pathway and you pivot and there's a path that way. And you pivot and there's a path that way. And so you don't really know which one's a mirror and which one's the actual path. So you, you kind of have to walk and they give you gloves so that you put smudges on all the mirrors I'm sure they pay a high schooler very little money to clean the mirrors, but as they walk around, you know, you, you kind of start off confident. You're like, oh, I'll know, and then you walk into a couple of them, and then you start walking around like this. And, and so, but essentially, in a mirror maze, all the mirrors have to be precise. If one is off a little bit, it ruins the whole illusion because they just feed off of one another and so when you mess one up, a whole of mirrors is out of whack, and, and, and it doesn't work. Well, I think so often we can be like a mirror maze. You know, we, when, we, when you walk in, it doesn't take long for something to be reflecting the wrong thing. Right? Have, have you ever walked into church? And for the first time, and you're just kind of, okay, yeah, this is good, this is good. And you see something, and it's just kind of like, what, what, what? Well, simply, the easiest way out of a mirror maze is the way you came in. If you can just remember that you took two turns, you can turn around and get out, and you don't have to go through. And so a lot of times, church, that's honestly what happens. People come in, and they see something that's not reflecting Christ, And they kind of get turned off, and they back up, 
and they find their way right back out the door. Well, Paul's telling us today that it's our jobs to be the reflection of the economy of God. This economy that operates in such a way that all may be made aware of the glory of God. You see, as, as we reflect Christ, we as the church never want to be like this mirror maze. We don't want people to walk in and see so many different reflections that they don't know which path to even go down. They simply get confused, overwhelmed, and they run out of the entrance. If we as members of Christ's church are reflecting things that cause division, it's not going to reveal the economy of God to our neighbor. But rather, it's going to seem like we're just members of the world, like everybody else, that fit in another category. And we already have enough categories today. But I'm willing to say today that we truly can be a body that reflects the one true Messiah for who, who is for all. We can be a body that can discuss our differences and embrace our diversity while recognizing that we're not simply trying to change the world with our personality, but rather we're being faithful to Christ, who can use our uniqueness to spread the mystery of the gospel. Paul ends this first chap- half of chapter 3 with quite the encouragement. He says to us, be confident. Say what needs to be said. Go where God needs you to go and be confident in the one who sent you. Saying what needs to be said is pretty easy for some of you. (laughs) We're so confident in our ways that we have no trouble saying what needs to be said. If someone says that a hot dog's not a sandwich, we feel led to say you're wrong and a terrible person. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not saying that from here on out, say whatever you want and God will back you up. Because we could read it that way. We really could. He's saying that if we've actually taken on this responsibility of being the way in which the economy of God is shared with the world, then we confidently proclaim the way of the Lord. If we really know Christ, we can confidently be the means of grace in the world. This only comes through constant communion with the Spirit. Just because we have the word church on our sign doesn't mean that we're automatically aligned with God's economy. We have to daily strive to be the same body that Christ commissions us to be and not some mannequin that looks faker than a $9 bill. You know, I mentioned Mr. Potato Head a few weeks ago And as an analogy of what happens when we take communion, we as the body can sometimes, we get discombobulated. We get scrambled up and we lose our limbs and we have them in the wrong place. But when we come around the table of the Lord, we're remembered and united the way that God attended. We're back in God's economy. Church, you can make a difference. You really, really can You've already been making a difference in this community for 75 years. I truly believe that Paul is saying to us today that if we want to make a difference individually, we really, really can. It can happen. His life is a testimony to that. Here's one guy in prison writing letters, and here we are 2,000 years later, and we're reading these letters as scripture. He made a difference. But he's also writing this letter Because he firmly believes that God's mission in the world was given a gift. And that gift is called the church. 
You see, we can often get those mixed up. But since the beginning of creation, God has been on mission in the world. And as the church, we are just grateful that God chose the church to be the way that that mission is carried out in the world. The church didn't need a mission. God's mission needed a church. As a united church under Christ, we can see transformation, as the text said, that the angels and the heavenly powers begin to notice. When this begins to happen, we, look, we, we better look out because God will be ever so faithful in providing what we need. And we'll be equipped to truly see thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I know I've got to be sounding repetitive to you. But Paul's letter seems to be continuing to build off these same themes of unity, inclusion of all, the body of Christ, and now gives us, the church, our role in that. Up to this point, he's been reminding us as individuals of our new story. But now he's sharing with us corporately that the church is the way in which God's economy will be made known to the world. And we have to take that seriously. So what does that mean for us today? I think it means that as a church, we're going to make decisions that people in the world and even other churches might scratch their head at. That we might come alongside people that don't deserve grace and partner with them in their journey to wholeness in Christ. You know, it looks like making decisions on on how we spend money looks like how we deal with adversity in the world. But church, when we can be unified as one body and we can truly reflect the grace of God in the world, I believe that we can new creation come. That the creation that is revealed in Revelation, that's the place where scars are not a sign of weakness, but scars are a sign of weakness. A place that is better than anything we could ever imagine. So today I ask, let's, let's pray together on behalf of us, the church on behalf of Gainesville Church of the Nazarene, on behalf of the church in the world today, as I talked with someone this week that said, I really, really burden and I'm nervous about the church in the future. And I said, I understand and I can see why and I, I get where you're coming from, I honestly do. And I said, I carry that same burden, but we have hope. As Barry said this morning in, in our rehearsal, there's so many people that just don't know where to turn right now. They're searching. They're looking. We have hope. And so today, we, as conduits of Christ's hope in the world, have got to start looking like it and saying what needs to be said. Where people are getting run over, we stop the chaos. We pray that the Spirit would lead us into places of division. So today, let's pray together for for our church, 
for the church universal, that, that we would begin to really take on this responsibility of being the bearers of God's grace in the world. Let, let's pray together. God, we, we come before you today reading these, these words of Paul that, that are wordy. He says a lot in a little amount of time, God. And Lord, would you help my words be out of the way this morning? That we would hear your scripture ring true in our lives. That you have invited us as the church to be on your mission in the world. God, we, we understand that that's going to look like operating differently than the world. That's going to look like making decisions that make people ask questions. And God, that's going to make us vulnerable. But Lord, I firmly believe for us to see another 75 years of faithful ministry here in Gainesville, that's what we have to do. We have got to be your conduits of grace. So Lord, remind us of of ways in the past where we've done that well. And Lord, convict us of ways in which we're not currently doing that well. Help us to dream your dreams of new creation in this world and and help us to, to walk that path with you. Because God, we proclaim today that what the world offers, it just ain't. And so many are searching for an answer. Lord, may we not hoard that answer today, but may we freely give it. God, we are thankful for your spirit that has met with us today. But as we've said in this series, may we not hold that spirit for our own spirit with those in our community that so desperately are searching and in need for you. Lord, may we take this call seriously to be the way in which your grace and your mystery is revealed to the world. Lord, we love you and we're thankful. But God, we don't know what tomorrow looks like without you guys. So with each and every step, would you do that for us? Would you guide us? Help us to live into this liturgy of abundance that says there's always enough. There's enough to share. Lord, would you stir in our hearts today what that looks like for our future. And it's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand today and receive a blessing? That the God of all grace and peace, who is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine, would help us to be conduits of grace in the world that so desperately needs it. So would you go from this place in his grace and his peace. Amen.